Hi, Alex. How are you? I'm Alex. I'm playing today's This Is Hell. Uh, your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed host, Chuck. Still laid up, getting better every week, getting stronger. And uh, I think we might have a surprise for you at the end of the week. Uh, in the meantime, myself, Dan, Lindsay, and Sebastian have been playing uh, some of our favorite interviews from the past few years. And more of the same this week. A little bit different, though. Uh, today, I'm going to be playing for you an interview with Assad Haider from 2018 on his book, Mistaken Identity, Race and Class in the Age of Trump. That's from Verso, one of my faves. Plus a all-new Rotten History at the end of today's ep and the question from hell, which I'll get to it right now. Today's question from hell is, what is distracting you from the class war? What is distracting you from the class war? You can answer on Facebook or Twitter or email alexthisishell.com or seb at thisishell.com. Get all your answers in by showtime Thursday, and we'll get uh, everything read, and your wit and our pick for our favorite answer gets any piece of merch they want from, well, the merch that we have on offer. <laughs> uh, sorry, I'm dealing with a low battery situation right now on this mouse, and I have, oh, I have 1% battery left. So let's get to this interview. This is hell. Identity politics are not what they used to be. They've been co-opted and controlled by politics that are the exact opposite of what the originators of identity politics believed. Here to explain, Assad Haider, author of Mistaken Identity, Race and Class in the Age of Trump. Welcome to This is Hal Assad. Hi, thanks for having me. Assad is a founding editor of Viewpoint Magazine, a fantastic publication, an investigative journal of contemporary politics, and this is far more cool. Assad is a Ph.D. candidate in the history of consciousness at UC Santa Cruz and a member of UAW 2865, the Student Workers Union at the University of California. And that might be the best part of any bio I have ever read on this show, Assad. So congratulations on that. Thank you. All right. So uh, let me ask you first. Oh, yeah, here we are. I'm all over the place with my notes today. You write that in 1977, the term identity politics in its contemporary form was introduced into political discourse by the Combahee River Collective, the CRC, a group of black lesbian militants, including founding members Barbara Smith, Beverly Smith, and Demita Frazee, who wrote the influential collective text, A Black Feminist Statement. They did not believe politics should be reduced to the specific identities of the individuals engaged in it. As Barbara Smith has recently reflected, what we were saying is that we have a right as people who are not just female, who are not solely black, who are not just lesbians, who are not just working class or workers, that we 
are people who embody all of these identities, and we have a right to build and define political theory and practice based upon that reality. That's what we meant by identity politics. We didn't mean that if you're not the same as us, you're nothing. We were not saying that we didn't care about anybody who wasn't exactly like us. To what degree were identity politics meant to be inclusive, and to what degree are today's identity politics, in your opinion, exclusive? Well, it's hard to get any clearer than Barbara Smith was there in that interview. Uh, what, what she's pointing to is the fact that her organization at the beginning was founded by people who had participated uh, in a number of coalitions and a number of different left organizations. Uh, and they came out of that with the understanding that particular kinds of reductive understandings of identity had severely limited the emancipatory potential of those movements. So a feminist movement which conceives of all women as being white, uh, a black liberation movement which, con- which conceives of all black people as being men, these were very limiting kinds of identities. And of course, <clears throat> the, the classical example being a labor movement which conceives of all workers as being white men. Uh, so these reductive identities uh, prevented these movements from really achieving the goals of emancipation that they had set out. And so the idea of identity politics, as they had originally conceived of it, was that their specific identity as black women was the one that was excluded from these hegemonic identities. And so by asserting their right to organize autonomously, to have their own agency, uh, they were breaking that kind of structure of exclusion. And they were bringing out the possibility of undermining all the existing structures of oppression, which is why they say in that statement, if black women become free, then everyone becomes free, because that means undermining the very structure that lies at the core of everyone's oppression. This, by the way, I just want to say your book was fascinating because this has been a topic that we've been talking about a lot on the show. And you quote Demita Frazier recalling the emphasis the Combahee organization placed on coalitions, saying, I never believe that Combahee or other black feminist groups I've participated in should focus only on issues of concern for us as black women or that as lesbian, bisexual women. We should only focus on lesbian issues. Uh, it's really important to note that uh, Combahee was uh, instrumental in founding a local battered women's shelter. We worked in coalition with community activists, women and men, lesbians and straight folks. We were very active in the reproductive rights movement, even though at the time most of us were lesbians. We found ourselves involved in coalition with the labor movement because we believed in the importance of supporting other groups. Even if the individuals in that group weren't all feminists, we understood that coalition building was crucial to our own survival. Why do we have the sense then that identity politics today is exclusive, working within a vacuum outside of any politics other than those that affect and are mo- uh, are about their identity first and foremost? Well, there, I think there are a number of reasons. One is simply the fact that uh, social movements have been fragmented and uh, largely defeated since the uh, late 70s um, uh, in most of the uh, advanced capitalist world. And that's something that has to do with the restructuring of capitalism that came with neoliberalism. It has to do with what Stuart Hall called the authoritarian populism of uh, Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan. And uh, we don't have a base of mass movements that sort of train people in the practice of coalition. And um, one thing to note is that coalitions uh, show you that identities are not fixed things, that you can't reduce people to their identities, and you can't reduce 
uh, politics to anybody's identity. In fact, uh, you know, Kimberly Crenshaw, who is well known for introducing the term intersectionality, she points out in one of the articles uh, that uh, elaborates on the term that even just what we consider to be a unitary identity group is in itself already a coalition. Because it's already composed of all kinds of people who are uh, defined and determined by a multiplicity of traits, even if you've just defined them according to one trait. Uh, and so right now, since we're, 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 we've lost an anchor in mass movements, we've lost the idea that politics uh, should be driven from below rather than just being a contestation between two different leaders of an elite uh, mainstream political party. We've lost that idea, and we've, we've come to rely on very reductive understandings of our identities because that's become the way that we gain access to our politics. That's the, by, by asserting our particular identities and claiming to be injured on the basis of our identities, we can demand protection or recognition from the state. And that's what our politics has been reduced to when we, when we lose that connection to mass movement. So how much then do identity politics limit our identity? And are we doing that to ourselves simply because that, as you were just saying, is the only way that we can have an impact on the political system as it stands right now? Well, uh, I think that um, the sort of reductive understanding of identity that is very prevalent now, which, um, uh, which, which reduces politics to just an expression of who you are, and who you are can be determined in many different ways. And even if you have an intersectional understanding of who you are, the idea that that somehow determines uh, the way that you think politically or the way that you act politically is a highly misleading way of understanding politics. Because we know that uh, many people who come from marginalized identities can be absorbed into the existing power structure and can... uh, engage in the kind of political practice, the kind of policymaking that's highly destructive to uh, the communities that they are either coming out of or now claiming to represent. Um, uh, There are are many examples of this, and we we just had uh, eight years of an example with Barack Obama. Uh, Why is it that the Black Lives Matter movement had to arise under the uh, uh, regime of the first first black president? that's an indication that the identity of an individual politician doesn't lead to structural political change. Uh, even if you know this was a this was an uh, it was a major turning point, uh, but the fact that uh, it came to be seen as a substitute for mass movements is why Black Lives Matter had to happen. Something had to happen from below to actually challenge the persistence of racism that um, so many people. Uh, had assumed was uh, adequately challenged by the election of a black politician. How much then is Black Lives Matter reclaiming the Combahee uh, River Collective's uh, meaning, the original meaning of identity politics as a collectivist response to the po- the problems of capitalism that we have today? I think that it, it was a movement with uh, many different tendencies. And um, it has gone through particular, a, a particular kind of evolution and has faced um, the challenges that social movements face in the United States. Um, I think uh, that there was, uh, in, in, in a strong sense, a return to the kind of um, mass-based coalitional practice of the Combi River Collective. Um, I don't know what direction 
that's taking now and what direction it will take in the future. Um, and it's just as before in the black freedom movement, there were many different tendencies and some led in a, in that kind of coalitional emancipatory mass organizing direction and others led in an elite leadership kind of direction that often rationalized itself with ideologies of racial unity, the reductive essentialist kinds of understandings of identity. And those exist now too. And so in any social movement, you see contradictions and antagonisms. Uh, and uh, it's important uh, to um, it's important to recognize those, I think. And we'll get back to that idea of the black misleadership class, as uh, Black Agenda reports, uh, uh, Glenn Ford calls it. But uh, you write uh, for the uh, Combahee River Collective, feminist political practice meant, for example, walking picket lines during strikes in the uh, building trades during the 1970s. But the history that followed seemed to turn the whole thing upside down. Then you quote historian Salar Mahandesi explaining what began as a promise to push beyond some of socialism's limitations to build a richer, more diverse and inclusive socialist uh, politics ended up exploited by those with politics diametrically opposed to those of the CRC. What were the politics of those who co-opted the CRC and the CRC's call for a more inclusive socialist politics and turned it into a more exclusive identity politics? Who co-opted those identity politics? Well, I mean, the the history that takes us through the 80s and 90s uh, in terms of the use of the word of these words identity politics is a really complicated one which is going to take another book to explain. Um, but uh, what we can I think that the term saw a real mainstream resurgence uh, with the 2016 primaries and that's I sort of make a jump um, a historical jump in order to show the instability of the term. That is, that it was introduced uh, as a kind of um, uh, emancipatory radical term. And recently, with the, a lot of the discourse around the Hillary Clinton campaign and the opposition to the Bernie Sanders campaign, it, it was used as a way specifically to undermine any challenge to the hegemonic ideas of the, of the mainstream of the Democratic Party. Uh, and in this context, it became totally uprooted from its origins, and um, I think there are basically we could identify two different ways that people meant uh, the word uh, or the term. Uh, one would be that it's just anything that has to do with race and gender, which is either seen in opposition to class or seen as something that has to be added to class or something of that kind. And then the other was the one that we've already been discussing, which is that your politics sort of... Uh, emerges from the foundation of your identity. And, you know, every time the term was used in the mainstream media, in uh, think pieces and so on, it seemed to take on a different meaning, sometimes different meanings within the same article. Um, but neither of these meanings obviously uh, was was uh, resonant with the very specific kind of meaning that the Combahee River Collective had. So I think that the way that it's become a kind of floating term now uh, is, has, has allowed it to be used in a kind of weaponized way in order to attack political adversaries. And the fact that Hillary Clinton represented uh, a continuation of the kind of neoliberal and militarist legacy of not just the Obama years, but also the preceding Bush years and the, the Bill Clinton years, years before that, 
uh, that became uh, suppressed, that was hidden underneath uh, the discourse of identity politics and the, and the equation of identity politics with some kind of civil rights agenda. And so the 2016 primaries were, were in, in many respects, a turning point in that uh, a politics that had to do with um, opposing racism and sexism became uh, separated and even turned into an opposition to a politics that was about overcoming economic inequality. And that's not how it was conceived before. Did the Hillary Clinton campaign then weaponize identity politics? Well, I mean, Hillary Clinton uh, made these tweets about privilege, used the word intersectionality. Uh, so there was, a, there was some direct appropriation. Uh, her communications director, who I quote in the book, said on, uh, I think, on MSNBC, it's all about identity on our side now. Uh, and I think a lot of pundits, a lot of people in the mainstream media um, uh, really adopted that language, often explicitly t- using the term identity politics um, as a way to say that, you know, um, I think I'm far to the left of Bernie Sanders, but one of the significant things about the Sanders campaign was that it presented a challenge to the existing political discourse in this country. It, it, it introduced a lot of new, young people to the word socialism. It introduced the idea that you could have a, uh, a political agenda that was not simply reduced to reshuffling the existing economic and political elite. Um, and that was something that um, the, the Hillary Clinton campaign and the liberal uh, intellectuals and intelligentsia were trying very hard to suppress. So how much does the identity politics, as defined by the uh, Hillary Clinton campaign, uh, how much does it support or uh, endorse the uh, idea of the elite? How much does it help? Uh, how much does it feed into the idea of an elite? Well, uh, uh, it's absolutely a kind of politics which is which revolves around individuals, and uh, the uh, identity politics is understood to be um, uh, an expression of the rights of an individual according to their particular identity, and that means that um, achieving, as I was saying about Obama, and the the, the same holds true of Clinton. Uh, achieving uh, any kind of victory against racism or sexism means diversifying uh, the ruling elite. And um, that doesn't do anything uh, for the mass of working people who belong to one of these particular identities, however they're conceived. I mean, um, the kinds of programs that, uh, that, that are required for overcoming racism and sexism are programs of structural change, and they're programs that will involve also economic change, though they're certainly not restricted to it. Uh, but they, they, none of that change can be achieved by, uh, uh, by diversifying the ruling elite. The ruling elite itself has to be challenged. How much does uh, identity politics fail to address institutionalized racism? Well, um, it's a significant... um, There's, first of all, this factor of the individualization that I was just talking about. Right. Second, there's um, a sense in which 
understanding race in identity terms reproduces the kinds of ideological categories that are created by racism. And uh, what we have to understand is that racism uh, is that race is socially constructed and it's constructed by racism. It's a central part of American history, uh, which I go into in my book. Um, it comes out of the uh, uh, sort of complicated transformations in migrant forced labor in uh, all the way back to the seventh, 17th century in colonial Virginia, the formation of racial slavery, uh, the, the, the changing in categories of indentured servitude. That's the, that's the, the kind of um, history that categories of race come out of. And if we understand race as just an attribute of a person, something that we can just see based on the color of skin or something or, or, or other physical characteristics, we've, we're, we're reproducing the racist discourse that was invented to, ra to rationalize uh, racial oppression. Uh, we're reproducing the kind of pseudoscience that European colonialists were using to justify their domination of the non-Western world. Um, and so one of the one of the things that we really need to do in order to oppose racism is break out of this kind of racial ideology and understand how race is historically socially constructed. Is the way identity politics are applied today and applied during the Hillary Clinton campaign a way in which class issues can be erased and dismiss critiques of neoliberal globalized capitalism? Yes, but I think also, you know, uh, I think that identity now, I think that the way that the Combahee River Collective talked about identity politics was, some, was a specific intervention into a specific uh, situation that they encountered in mass movements and political practice. I think that identity as a general category to explain race and gender is not adequate. These are really specific social relations with really specific histories, and you have to look at them in their specificity and not subsume them into some general thing called identity. And uh, to just have a kind of list of race, gender, and class, as though these were all different, you know, um, parallel or intersecting lines, that doesn't adequately understand um, how any of them operate and how they are articulated together into one society, how they're connected into one social structure. Uh, so th that kind of way of uh, you know, reifying these categories of, of, of turning them into kind of empty abstractions. Uh, that's how this opposition gets created between race and gender on the one hand and class on the other, or turning class into an identity in itself. N none of these things should be understood that way. Uh, we, what we actually have to do is look at the society as it, as it exists and look at the relations that constitute it and look at the, 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 the ways that they come together into one social structure, and then we'll find that it's never in isolation. You never have racism in, in isolation from economic exploitation and inequality. You never have racism in opposition from particular uh, patriarchal understandings of the family, for example. Um, these things are part of one process, one historical process and one social structure. And so by turning them into empty abstractions, it then becomes possible to pit them against class. But uh, that doesn't explain any of these things, and it doesn't help us to 
tackle any of these uh, problems. We are speaking with Assad Haider. He is author of Mistaken Identity, Race and Class in the Age of Trump. You can go to our website, thisishell.com, and click on the title of the book, and it takes you directly to the publisher's website where you can purchase the book. You write as the historian Jacqueline Dowd Hall elaborates in her analysis of the long civil rights movement. Martin Luther King Jr. has been rendered an empty symbol, frozen in 1963. Through selective quotation, Hall observes the uplifting rhetoric of his speeches have been stripped of its content, his opposition to the Vietnam War through an analysis linking segregation to imperialism, his democratic socialist commitment to unionization, his orchestration of the Poor People's Campaign, and his support for a sanitation worker strike when he was assassinated in Memphis. How does this stripping of the content of King's speeches and writing undermine the more inclusive identity politics of, say, the Black Panthers, who at the time, according to Black Panther leader Kathleen Cleaver, you you quote writing, we organized the Rainbow Coalition, pulled together our allies, including not only the Puerto Rican Young Lords, the youth gang called Black Pea Stone Rangers, the Chicano Brown Berets, and the Asian Red Guards, but also the predominantly white Peace and Freedom Party and the Appalachian Young Patriots Party. We pose not only a theoretical but a practical challenge to the way our world was organized, and we were men and working men and women working together. How does the stripping of content from King's words undermine the idea of identi- identity politics that offer a collective response? Well, one thing that shows you is that really across the spectrum. I mean, you named um, uh, two different. Uh, uh, you, you, you named on the one hand Martin Luther King, who's associated with the classical civil civil rights movement and then the Black Panthers who are associated with Black power, and they're usually put in opposition. And, you know, in, 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 to, to a large extent, they were in opposition over tactics and strategy, over the question of violence and so on. But one thing that they, were, that they really had in common was the understanding of the Black Freedom Movement of the United States as part of a global movement against colonialism and capitalism. And... Uh, the, they, what they shared fundamentally was an understanding that uh, the movement in, against racism in the United States also had to be a movement against economic exploitation. It had to be a socialist movement. Both uh, Martin Luther King and the Black Panther Party use this word explicitly. Now, the fact that um, these figures are invoked today uh, is representing uh, and 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 both of them are. I mean, you you find uh, references to Martin Luther King have become mainstream. Of course, uh, Martin Luther King Day was signed into law by Ronald Reagan, um, and uh, the the Black Panthers were often referred to, um, even by uh, the kind of more elite neoliberally oriented um, kinds of opportunistic uh, people who 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 took up Black Lives Matter. Uh, as a way to um, uh, launch a kind of uh, personal political career. Uh, the fact that these people talked, that these that King and the Black Panthers talked about socialism gets completely erased. And uh, that's a very, I think, you know, you can see in some cases that's a very deliberate strategy, but it has a very powerful effect on people who um, have not had access to this kind of information. Um, Obviously, this is not what gets taught in schools. We don't get taught that uh, Martin Luther King 
um, was talking about democratic socialism, was calling for uh, a general strike for in, in support of the sanitation workers in Atlanta um, just before he died, that he supported the Vietnamese struggle for self-determination. We don't uh, get a history of the Black Panther Party that tells us about how they raise money by selling copies of the Little Red Book, uh, about how they conceived of the Free Breakfast for Children program as a specific as a program of socialist political education. Um, these are things that we need to learn and we need to revive that tradition. We need to disseminate that information because it's very valuable, because it tells us about what the struggle against racism in the United States actually was and what it has to continue to be. You write organizations like the NAACP, led by the elites of the black community, had tried to distance themselves from the revolutionary possibilities of the struggle, shifting funding and resources away from economic issues and toward the battle against Southern legal segregation. As time went on, this became a significant limit on the scope of mass mobilization. To what degree is that shift away from economic issues, the end of the mass movement that started by that was started by the civil rights movement in the 1950s that had major successes with the Civil Rights Act of 64, the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Did that shift away from economic issues end the mass movement as well as the more collective and cross-cultural state of identity politics? Well, after 65, everybody was thinking, you know, in the civil rights movement, we have to, we have to shift economic issues now because uh, we've achieved these uh, uh, formal legal victories against segregation, but segregation and racism continue to exist because of the economic structures of the society, because of the, the de facto segregation in the cities, because of um, the leadership structures, because of the, of, of the sheer fact of poverty. Um, and that's what, you know, Martin Luther King was totally preoccupied with in, in those uh, last three years. Um, and that's also uh, what started to become apparent with the emergence of uh, the urban rebellions, the riots in the, the inner cities of the North, um, and the uh, rise of organizations like the Black Panthers and, and others that were taking up the slogans of black power. Um, but at that point, um, the, the, the politics becomes complicated because um, having a movement against economic exploitation uh, when these victories had been achieved at the formal legal level uh, was a complicated prospect. They had spent o- over a decade Building, b- building a movement against segregation in the South, and all of a sudden needed a new strategy, needed a new language, and that's what King was working on, and you know, often butting heads with his associates in the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, and the um, other organizations, the Black Power organizations, uh, were facing extreme state repression, and some of the uh, limits of trying to take up a strategy of violent revolution that had worked in China and Cuba and so on, and applying it to the very different context of the United States. Um, and one thing that happened, that comes out of that is that black nationalism uh, sort of becomes an ambiguous political force. On the one hand, it's working to create uh, institutions that are not just uh, trying to integrate into the white society, but um, trying to uh, provide a parallel structure for people who had, for black people who had been excluded, um, and for a certain period, 
that is something that unites um, the uh, more elite members of the black community with the mass of the black community. But slowly there's, as, as a kind of integration of society takes place, uh, especially at the elite level, as black mayors are elected, as black businessmen begin to rise, there, these interests are no longer in alignment. And so what you find in uh, the 70s is uh, that as neoliberal restructuring is happening, many black politicians are the ones who are imposing austerity on their own constituencies. And the idea of racial unity that came out of black nationalism is now, in this context, a kind of obstacle to seeing that antagonism. Uh, and so th this is something that uh, many participants in the uh, black nationalist movements recognize. For example, Amiri Baraka, who I go into in the book, uh, he faced this situation specifically in Newark. And that's what caused him to make this conversion from black nationalism, from cultural nationalism specifically, to uh, Marxism in uh, the early 70s. You write on the uh, on this lack of liberation and just replacing a black white cop with a black cop, which I found you write how uh, you're setting up a situation for, in which the white cop it would be replaced by a black cop. For the Black Panthers, this was not liberation. On this lack of liberation, just replacing a white cop with a black cop, you write. That was clearly the situation we were getting into in the United States. As optimistic liberals celebrated the replacement of mass movements, riots, and armed calls with a placid multiculturalism, over the course of several decades, the legacy of anti-racist movements was channeled toward the economic and political advancement of individuals like Barack Obama and Bill Cosby, who would go on to lead the attack against social movements and marginalized communities. How did Barack Obama lead an attack against social movements and marginalized communities? Well, you know, Bill Cosby actually came first uh, with uh, what was known as the pound cake speech, you know, going around uh, speaking, uh, speaking to black communities in various places and talking about how the responsibility for um, the uh, the inequality, the racial inequalities that exist in American society lay with the culture of black communities. And, you know, he, it's the kind of thing that says, you know, pull your pants up, etc. And Obama did that himself with what was called the, the Popeye speech, in which he said, you know, you, he, speaking to a black audience, said you can't be feeding your children uh, cold Popeyes for breakfast. Well, uh, in both cases, uh, that's um, that's the kind of um, colonial men mentality which says that the people who have been exploited and subjugated uh, for so long are themselves responsible for their position because of the inadequacy of their own uh, culture and practices. And uh, that's, I mean, that just sort of is an illustration of how the uh, rise of an individual black politician um, doesn't lead to the overcoming of the structures of racism in a very direct way in the sense that he himself went out and you adopted this racist rhetoric uh, and um, he should be held responsible for that. 
You write, quote, in an analysis of the murder of Freddie Gray and the ensuing uprising in Baltimore, a uh, past guest on our show, uh, Kianga Yamada Taylor, writing in her writes in her book from Black Lives Matter to Black Liberation. Actually, she argues we have broken in a fundamental way from the context that produced the classical vo- vocabulary of the anti-racist struggle. Then you quote her writing, There have always been class differences among African-Americans, but this is the first time those class differences have been expressed in the form of a minority of blacks wielding significant political power and authority over the majority of black lives. This raises critical questions about the role of the black elite in the continuing freedom struggle and about what side are they on. This is not an overstatement. When a black mayor governing a largely black city aids in the mobilization of a military unit led by a black woman to suppress a black rebellion. We're in a new period of the black freedom struggle. How much does the reaction by the city of Baltimore to the shooting of Freddie Gray reveal either the failings of today's uh, revealed actually the failings of today's uh, identity politics? Well, um, I think what it reveals is that there has not been an adequate challenge to the structures of governance and the economic structures that are keeping these um, racist practices in place. Um, the the fact that uh, you have black leadership, we we as a, as as, a, as we've been discussing, um, doesn't change the way that uh, that um, the lives of black people uh, uh, at a mass level are still fundamentally affected by the structures of racism, and that without a challenge to the um, authoritarianism of this society, the the militarization of this society, and to the extreme economic polarization in this society, uh, it will be impossible for people to achieve any kind of social change. Uh, I I mean, I think that's something that, uh, you know, we can debate all day back and forth about identity politics, about race and gender and so on. But the thing is, any social movement is going to ultimately have to confront the state. It's ultimately going to have to confront the uh, the way that our society is structured so that a minority can rule and keep things the way they are. If you want to challenge the status quo, you have to challenge that. And to to turn that into some kind of opposition, an opposition between race and class or something like that, is fundamentally disabling and um, uh, self-defeating. So if you want to have an anti-racist movement, it has to involve a class struggle against the people who are, uh, are, whatever their identity, who are part of the ruling structures and who are preventing social change from happening. You quote the author and Black Liberation supporter James Boggs, uh, husband of... Uh, the late, great Grace Lee Boggs, reflecting in 1993, shortly before his death, before the Civil Rights Act of 1964, we may have had the money, but we couldn't go into most hotels to buy a home outside of the ghetto. Today, the only reason why we can't go to a hotel or buy a decent home is because we don't have the money, but we are still focused on the question of race, and it is paralyzing us. What were or are the questions of race that you believe are paralyzing any black black liberation movement to this day? Well, I think it's precisely the way that it's turned into an opposition. You know, because uh, Boggs was pointing out that um, th- that 
it's not as though Boggs was just saying, now it's just about economics. Now our, our situation is, meaning the situation of black people in his context in Detroit, um, that that situation is just the same uh, as that of poor white people. Um, it's pointing out that racism is now expressed through this economic inequality in, in the way that before it was expressed through laws and um, uh, formal uh, exclusion. And so now that exclusion is taking the form of economic inequality. And there is a uh, racial disparity in wealth in this country. That's fundamentally the case. And, it can, and you know, that, that uh, uh, has to be a central, um, uh, uh, that has to be centrally targeted by any social movement that wants to change the way that this country works. You know, uh, an, uh, a labor movement, a socialist movement um, that is worthy of the name is going to take that kind of racial disparity into account and is going to put it front and center. Uh, but also a movement against racism that wants, to target against, that wants to target that racial disparity has to understand that if it's economically expressed, that also requires a movement that uh, is operating at the level of class. They cannot be separated. And that's, that's what um, uh, the, the, that's the kind of paralyzing way of talking about race when it's turned into something that's separate from class and separate from economic structure. You write by coding demands that come from marginal or subordinate groups as identity politics. The white male identity is enshrined with the status of the neutral, general and universal. We know that this is false. In fact, there is a white identity politics, a white nationalism. And as we shall see, whiteness is the prototypical form of racial ideology itself. Anti-racist struggles like those of the Combahee River Collective reveal the false universality of the hegemonic identity. To what extent do today's identity politics, even unintentionally, reinforce white supremacy? Well, um, I think, uh, first of all, it's, it's um, extremely illuminating to understand uh, whiteness as one of the primary forms of race, because that shows you exactly how, um, how constructed these categories are, just how much they are not part of the uh, expression of some individual's characteristics. Um, all these different groups that in Europe were part of racial hierarchies, like the English and the Irish, or Germans and Poles uh, migrated to the United States and over a long process all became integrated into one entity called the white race. Uh, that's what Theodore Allen called the invention of the white race and that's something that I uh, uh, quote in my book. Uh, that shows exactly how delusional the white supremacists and the alt-right are today when they talk about this category of whiteness. They're talking about a fictive construction, okay, uh, one that is real in the sense that it has real social effects, but has no basis in human physiology or even culture, okay? Um, and so I think that uh, often there's a tendency to simply take what the right says and invert it and uh, just accept the basic categories. So to respond to uh, what the alt-right is saying by uh, 
taking the category of white people and whiteness as though they are real things, um, that ends up reinforcing the uh, ideological structure that they're using to um, to put forth a highly misleading uh, rationalization for a very dangerous political agenda. And so, once again, we have to be able to question the racial ideology, these um, empty abstractions of race, uh, and that applies to whiteness first and foremost. And you were talking earlier, and you write about how identity politics leads to a victimhood and re- reduces us and reduces people to that victimized belonging. Yet we see claims of being discriminated against and victimhood on the far right. And according to a poll recently done uh, last uh, October, I believe, by NPR, a majority of white Americans feel they are discriminated against. Do whites on the far right who claim victimhood also face the possibility of being defined by its victim victimhood and reduced to that victimized belonging? And if so, what does that mean for the white race? Well, first of all, I'll say on the question of victimhood, when I criticize a uh, political discourse that's based on victimhood, this is not like the conservative kind of uh, grandfatherly thing like, you know, don't, don't see yourself as a victim or stop whining, etc., No, this is from a very different perspective. This perspective is that if we understand ourselves politically as victims, that means that our politics is reduced to asking for protection from the state. But if we understand ourselves fundamentally as engaged in, uh, as political agents who are capable of engaging in resistance, that's a very different kind of politics. That's the kind of politics that can actually lead to emancipation, that can actually lead to changing society. Uh, Claiming victimhood and asking for protection will not change the existing structure of society. Um, Now, of course, when when the alt-right and uh, various kinds of white supremacists we have today uh, claim the status of victimhood, they are being cynical. Uh, When when I, I don't know who exactly was. Uh, polled in the, with the numbers you cited, um, but we can presume that a lot of those people are um, are sort of uh, unable to conceive of a way to think about politics outside of asking the state for protection, outside of asking the state for some kind of redress of their grievances. Now, if there are poor white people or also middle-class white people who have found that their standard of living has declined, they've become more precarious, um, I think they're often going to uh, reach for that kind of claim, that they are victims, uh, and they're going to uh, have a distorted understanding that they're the victims of uh, immigrants or black people or gay people or transgender people or whatever other group uh, happens to be uh, targeted in in the, the media that they're uh, that they're getting these ideas from, um, instead of understanding that actually what's happened is a an, an objective political historical process in which um, the the uh, ruling elite has changed their conditions of life, um, and so. You know, with, with the alt-right, uh, they're using it cynically. Uh, they should be destroyed. Uh, with m- more mainstream people who are confused, they need to be re-educated and they need to 
understand uh, that uh, th- that anti-racism is in their interests, and that's something that a lot of an- that a lot of today's identity politics won't accept because it's fundamentally lodged in a moralizing kind of discourse. The thing is that the vast majority of white people, whether they voted for Trump, whatever, they need to be re-educated. Uh, they can't just be, it, 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 it may feel satisfying just to condemn them, but if we actually want to overcome racism, we have to deal with the fact that a huge proportion of this society uh, is constantly reproducing white supremacy, even sometimes on an unconscious level, and they need to be re-educated into opposing racism. And they also need to be recruited into an anti-capitalist program, and that's, that's ultimately going to have to be the same thing. We have been speaking with Assad Haider. He is author of Mistaken Identity, Race and Class in the Age of Trump. Assad is a founding editor of Viewpoint Magazine, an investigative journal of contemporary politics, and you should definitely find it online, Viewpoint Magazine. It's a fantastic publication. One last question for you, Assad, and it's what we call the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. Is it possible to be a critic of identity politics and not be supporting racism or sexism? Because past guests who have been critical of identity politics have been either labeled as racist or sexist or not realizing how much racism and sexism are still prevalent today. So can you both be a critic of identity politics and not be racist or sexist? It depends because it depends on how you understand the term. And you know, some people ask me, "Well, why do you criti- Why did you frame your argument as a critique of identity politics instead of reclaiming its radical potential?" And you know, that's the particular uh, strategic decision that I made, a particular critical uh, uh, decision that I made, because I think that now the term has become so unstable that we can't just reassert its origins. Uh, I think. I want to bring attention to its origins to show people that a different kind of politics was possible and that there was a very uh, valuable revolutionary kind of contribution to American politics that was made by the people who put forth this term. Uh, the way that it's used now is not anchored in that original usage. And there's something here that's happening now that we have to criticize. And uh, if we're going to criticize that, I believe, and uh, I think this is fundamental. It must be done from a perspective that is anti-racist and feminist. And it must be done from the perspective of saying, what is the most useful way of thinking and the most useful way of acting that can oppose racism and sexism? And is identity politics, in the, in the way that it currently exists, in the way that uh, people use these terms, is that actually useful for those goals? And uh, I think that in terms of its current usage, it is not. And that's why I choose to criticize it. If someone criticizes it because they think that uh, at some abstract level, class matters more than race, or that um, we have to uh, prioritize sameness over difference or something like that, then I think it's, there, there's a strong likelihood that the critique will be, will be racist and sexist. Uh, but I think if the critique starts from the point uh, from the perspective that we need an adequate language for opposing racism and sexism, is this an adequate language? 
then that can be a constructive and valuable critique, which I hope I have aspired to do. Our guest has been Assad Hyder. He is author of Mistaken Identity, Race and Class in the Age of Trump. Thank you so much for being on This Is Hell this week, Assad. Thanks for having me. Hey, producer Alex here. You just listened to an interview with Assad Hyder from June 23rd, 2018, on his book, Mistaken Identity, Race and Class in the Age of Trump for Verso. Uh, I'm in here playing the hits, playing my hits. This is just one of my favorite interviews. Uh, While Chuck is getting better from his ordeal, uh, and he is getting better, a lot better, I think we'll have some very good news for you quite soon. Not yet, but pretty soon. Uh, So, until then, we've got some rotten history. Rotten history for the week of Monday, May 22nd, 2022. On May 4th, uh, two days from now, 1921, that would be 101 years ago this week, Amid waves of African Americans arriving from the South in the Great Migration, seeking refuge from Jim Crow laws and racist violence, the Chicago Real Estate Board responded by voting unanimously to eject those among its own members who sold property to black families in predominantly white neighborhoods. This came at a time when the board and its members were organizing white residents throughout Chicago into contractual agreements that prohibited such sales. A typical such contract specified that no one with one-eighth or more African-American blood would be allowed to buy or rent in certain strictly defined neighborhood areas. The real estate board followed this up by sending its own members to speak at neighborhood meetings around Chicago to promote segregation in housing. And within 10 years, the neighborhood covenants, as they were known, would exclude or restrict black residents from almost 90% of the city. That's Rotten History. For Monday, May 22nd, 2022, Rotten History is written by Ronaldo Magaldi. Thanks, Ronaldo. And this week's question from hell for you is, what is distracting you from the class war? What is distracting you personally from the class war? Let us know on Twitter or Facebook or email alexthisishell.com or seb at thisishell.com. Stick with us. Tomorrow, we got Dan in the studio playing Boots Riley's interview. Uh, bonus points if you can make it through him eating his breakfast while talking with Chuck. as uh, a good one. It's in uh, one of my favorite interviews in which the guest is eating something during the entire interview. Uh, there's a David Graeber interview like that one too. New picks from Lindsay and Sebastian after that. Uh, we'll keep it going. And like, uh, like I said, Chuck's getting better every day. And uh, we'll be back to it, I'm thinking, in May. All right, thanks for sticking with us. Uh, yeah, more to come, better things to come down the road. God, I hope so. Okay, Uh, I got to go pick up my kid from school. So thanks for sticking with us. Bye. My demon is on my butt. (laughs) My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.